The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Morning. Super glad to be here with all of you. Uh, I'm Pastor Vince. I do a lot of the Bible teaching here, if uh, you're not aware. And so that's what I'm here to do now. Uh, really excited to get into the text today. Before I do that, though, I do want to say uh, a couple things. Uh, if you want, you can turn to Mark 15. We're going to be in verses 25 through 47 today. We'll be finishing Mark 15. Um, today is Palm Sunday. And uh, that's the beginning of what has traditionally been referred to as Holy Week. Um, as Jay just said that. Um, and and that's, that's really cool because uh, that, the Palm Sunday is a reference to the triumphal entry, right? Because people were cutting down branches and they were doing, uh, they were celebrating and they were shouting and uh, declaring the, the worth of Jesus as he came in uh, to Jerusalem. And so that's where we find ourselves today. Um, as you're turning there, I do want to let you know, also about a couple things coming up. We've been saying this. We've now sent out stuff uh, through the socials and also through the email. Uh, how many of you got the email that Pastor Jordan sent out and you actually opened it? Let me see your hands. Remember, Jesus is watching. Amen. Baby Jesus sees your hands, okay? Oh, man. Uh, so <laughs> got to razz you guys about opening the emails. Just in case you haven't heard me say this yet, there's, you know, we can see how many people open them. So open them up, okay? It's from us. <laughs> Cleared out of the spam folder if that's what's happening. Uh, so a couple things coming up. Big deals that are going to be really fun. So Good Friday, which is this upcoming Friday, we're going to have a joint service with a couple other local churches. Uh, that's going to be a, a time of celebration, uh, which I'll say a little bit more about in a minute. But that's this Friday at 7 here uh, at our church building, okay? And then the other thing we have coming up, April 3rd will be our first men's group. I've, I've said lots of details about that over the last week, so I'm not going to take much time for it today. But if you hadn't heard about that and you want more info, talk to someone in the Connect Center after uh, the service or check out the email. Amen. Okay, so uh, today is, is Palm Sunday, and in God's great providential sovereignty, we find ourselves reaching uh, the end of the book of Mark as we finish our seven-month study that we've called Servant King. So we'll finish 15 today. Next Sunday, uh, as most of you are probably aware, is Resurrection Sunday, right? That's our day. It's Easter. And so we'll be in Mark 16 to finish out the book uh, next week, which I'm very excited to do with you. So last week we looked at the uh, Roman trial of Jesus and the subsequent torture that he endured at their hands. Uh, this week we're going to focus in on his crucifixion and burial. Uh, and like I said, as, and we, as we've been announcing, we're going to have a special service on Good Friday. And that will also, of course, be focused on the death of Jesus in our place. But it's going to be very different from our approach today. The Good Friday service is going to be a bit more liturgical. It's going to be a contemplative look at the seven statements Jesus made uh, upon the cross uh, with readings around those and uh, worship through song in between. Uh, today, what we're going to do is we're going to dig into the text as we fix our gaze upon what I would call the, the, the sacrificial crescendo of God's eternally ordained plan of redemption. Okay, so 
Uh, just, just because we're in the crucifixion today, I'm just saying, doesn't mean you'll be bored on Friday. If you can, you should come to that too. Amen? Uh, so whether or not you're able to attend that service, my hope is that your mind will be focused on and your heart overcome by the sacrifice of our Savior this week. I really hope that every day, honestly, but uh, my prayer is that uh, it will be true for us to an even greater degree this week. And if, uh, if you're going into this week, or as this week unfolds, if you're struggling to focus on the beautiful truth of Christ's gospel, uh, I, I want to take a moment to do a pretty lame, terribly cliche pastor move right here. Okay? You guys ready for it? Who of you have seen the news about the 200,000 ton ship stuck in the Suez Canal? Let me see your hand if you've seen that. Okay? If you haven't, uh, obviously you don't watch the news, you're probably reading your Bible all the time, so that's kudos to you. Because uh, it's a pretty big deal, right? It's, but the Suez Canal is a major trade lane, and so it's, world markets are affected. It's a big deal. Um, and, you know, in, in, in 2021, nothing can happen uh, without it becoming a meme pretty quickly. So, uh, those are happening, um, but basically we got this 200,000, the Suez Canal is not that wide, this 200,000 ton ship ran aground kind of sideways, it's blocking the whole thing, okay? So, now, whether or not you've heard of it, have you, how many of you have seen the picture of the single backhoe kind of out on the edge trying to dig and make this futile attempt to free that giant ship? Tell me if you've seen that picture, okay? Less of you, all right, well... This, that's going to make this even lamer, so that's cool. I need you guys to get a little more time on the internet, okay? Keep reading your Bibles, but look at stuff, okay? Because <laughs> then how do I do this, right, if <laughs> you don't know what's going on? Um, but here's, here, so just imagine this. This ship is giant. The picture is, is of this backhoe trying to dig it out, and it's, it's comical, and that's why it's become a meme, because it, <laughs> clearly what this backhoe is doing is probably not going to fix the problem, okay? But man, he's out there trying. So what I'm saying is, all of that, wow, uh, is to say, if this week you're struggling with staying focused on the beauty and the truth of Christ's gospel, okay, imagine that 200,000 ton ship as our sin, and imagine that backhoe as our futile attempts to fix the problem, okay? That's, that's the reality. So if you haven't seen that pic, go find it. And uh, I, I do want to say this too, if that's already a meme, you know, if someone already wrote over the, the backhoe, uh, our futile attempts and put our sin on the ship. Uh, I didn't see it, so I apologize for accidentally stealing the idea. But if it's not a meme yet, and one of you have the capabilities to whip that up real quick, uh, let me know, right? Because then I'll ask Pastor Jordan if we can pass it, you know, post it on our social media stuff, and uh, I'll feel really original and cool. Uh, he may tell me no, and then I'll just put it on my own pages because he can't veto anything that I do on my own social page, so... You hear that, Pastor Jordan, wherever you're at? Uh, okay, enough of that. Let's read these verses together and get to work, okay? Because we got, we got some work to do. I, I told you we're in Mark 15. We're going uh, 25 through 47, okay? <clears throat> Here we go. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, 
you who were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the less, and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was wondering if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. Praise God for his word. Amen. We're going to come back to 25, work our way through, okay? So, 25 through 32 is kind of the first segment as I see it. And throughout the book of Mark, we've, we've seen how utterly foolish humans can be and how often we miss the point. I've encouraged you, as, as we've observed that, to avoid scoffing at the ignorance of those who challenge Jesus because of the false beliefs and the traditions that they elevated above the truth of God. Instead of scoffing at them, what we must do instead is realize that we are not immune and we're actually prone to the same kind of pride and foolishness. And the right move for us when we observe this is to humbly acknowledge our own tendencies. This human propensity for brazen ignorance is on full display in these first seven verses that we read today. Where do we see that? Well, it starts right off in verse 25. Mark only gives us the hour and the fact in verse 25 that these men had the audacity to crucify the Lord of glory. Mark doesn't go into details, but I think it's right for us to take a minute to connect with what that really means. Okay? One commentator described the horror of crucifixion in this way. 
Although the Romans did not invent crucifixion, they perfected it as a form of torture and capital punishment. It was designed to produce a slow death with maximum pain and suffering. The victim's back was first torn open by the scourging. Then clotting blood was ripped open again when the clothes were torn off the victim. When he was thrown to the ground to fix his hands to the cross beam, the wounds were torn open again and contaminated with dirt. Then as he hung on the cross, each breath made the painful wounds on the back scrape against the rough wood of the upright beam. When the nail was driven through the wrist, it severed the large median nerve going to the hand. This stimulated nerve produced excruciating bolts of fiery pain in both arms and could result in a claw-like grip in the victim's hands. Beyond the excruciating pain, the posture of crucifixion made it painful to simply breathe. The weight of the body pulling down on the arms and shoulders made it feel like you could breathe in but not out. The lack of oxygen led to severe muscle cramps, which made it even harder to breathe. To get a good breath, one had to push against the feet and flex the elbows, pulling from the shoulders, putting the weight of the body on the nail-pierced feet, producing searing pain. And flexing the elbows twisted the hands hanging on the nails. Lifting the body for a breath also scraped the open wounds on the back against the rough wooden post. Each effort to get a proper breath was agonizing, exhausting, and led to a quicker death. Not uncommonly, insects would light upon or burrow into the open wounds or the eyes, ears, and nose of the dying and helpless victim. And birds of prey would tear at these sights. Moreover, it was customary to leave the corpse on the cross to be devoured by predatory animals. Death from crucifixion could come in many different ways. Acute shock from blood loss, suffocation from being too exhausted to breathe, dehydration, heart attack induced by stress, heart rupture from congestive heart failure. However, if the victim did not die quickly enough, his legs were broken and he was soon unable to breathe. The Roman statesman of the time, Cicero, said this, It's a crime to bind a Roman citizen. To scourge him is an act of wickedness. To execute him is almost murder. What shall I say of crucifying him? An act so abominable it is impossible to find any word to adequately express. As if inflicting this despicable torture on the incarnate Son of God wasn't enough. They felt it appropriate to insult and shame him, even as he hung there. The Romans got their shot in by inscribing King of the Jews and nailing it above him. This was to let people know that anybody that would rise up and try to assume themselves a king of anything in a Roman territory was going to suffer a similar fate. It was, it was a jab. It was a it was a mocking of the idea that Jesus could be the king of the Jews. Little did they know he was the king of far more than just the Jews. It wasn't only the Romans that saw the need to insult him. The crowd, as we read, and the religious leaders, they mocked him. Thinking that the fact that the nails were holding him to the cross were proof that he was a fraud. Didn't you hear it in the way they talked about it? Let's see if he can get himself down. He saved others, can't save himself. 
They thought the fact that the nails were holding him there were proof that he was a fraud. And even, even those crucified next to him wasted some of their last words to scorn the only one who could actually save them. But, as often happens with folks who like to talk tough when they think there's no risk, they all got real quiet when it became apparent that it wasn't the nails holding Jesus to the cross, but it was the power of God motivated by his love and his desire to save sinners. And you might wonder, well, when did that become apparent? I believe the shift is very clear. It's in verse 33. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Okay? It's, it's debated uh, somewhat, but this is the middle of the day. Probably noon to three. Okay? This, this is a chilling event. This is where folks started to get shook. As Jesus is on the cross, and all of a sudden, middle of the day, the sky goes dark for three hours. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if you had just been wagging your head and hurling your insults and then the lights go out? You better at least be nervous, if not terrified. And here's the thing, the Romans may not have caught the significance of this, but the religious leaders who knew their Hebrew history, they should have. There was another time when supernatural darkness covered the land, and that was in Egypt. And this was a clear sign of God's judgment. And whether a person understood the significance or not, whether they connected the dots of that, this unnatural event should have sent a shiver up their spine. But what many of them failed to realize in that moment, and if we don't take a minute, we could fail to realize, was how all of this tied together. Okay, Darkness of the ten plagues of Egypt was the last plague in Egypt before the final one. Class, what was the final plague in Egypt? It was the death of all the firstborn, right? Darkness was the one right before that. And there was de- that, fu- that final plague, death to the firstborn son. It happened to every house that did not have the blood of a sacrificed lamb spread over its doorpost. See, friends, this time, the Passover lamb wasn't laying on a wooden table. He was hanging on a wooden cross. And all of this goes together. God's providential sovereignty, God's might and power is on display as the details of this, which seem to be out of control. For those who love Jesus and are observing all this happening, it seems like things are out of control. But what I want, part of what I want to show you today is not for one second was any of this outside of the plan of God. Every detail was orchestrated for his purposes. Every single one. There's, there should have been more clues as we continue reading through this for those observing that <clears throat> perhaps it wasn't the nails holding him there. Verse 34, the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, 
The translation of those Aramaic words being, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you may have been thinking, well, man, you just said real confidently everything was under control. That doesn't really sound like things are under control. Let's talk about it. This desperate question, screamed out by our crucified king, and the, the, the translation here is a little muted, this, this, was, this was a scream. This was every bit of a scream. Okay, it, he, he didn't say this soft. Almost a shriek. Okay, But this desperate question screamed out by our crucified king. It, this, this question right here, these words of Jesus by themselves have produced volumes of commentary throughout church history. For good reason. Because there's a lot in this. The first thing I think we should observe here, and, and hopefully this is an encouragement to you, this, the fact that this is recorded is pretty compelling evidence that we're reading trustworthy eyewitness accounts. Because if you're trying to drum up this fake religion, if you're trying to garner followers to just fleece them for money or whatever, whatever false saviors all of their reasonings are. But if you're coming up with some fake thing, you, you probably wouldn't include this in the text because any casual reader at first glance, your first approach up on this, Jesus screaming out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It sounds like it sounds like a problem. It sounds like he's, he's, he's losing his faculties or he's in, in this great sense of, of desperation and it, like he feels like the Father has, has left him. It, it, it seems like a loss. And, and when, you, when you're trying to start a fake religion, you don't, you don't talk about the hero's losses. You, you paint them and go, and go look at the, the death stories of the heroes of many movements and religions. They're always, you'll always see them, their last words being recorded as something very wise and very calm and they're very in control. This doesn't look that way. This doesn't seem that way. This doesn't, this doesn't echo the, the, the scene in Braveheart, right? Where Mel Gibson's stretched out. They cut him open. They're pulling his entrails out. And the guy's hoping he's going to finally get him to recant. And he, he starts to say something and the, and the guy gets down what do you want to say? And the last word he screams is freedom, right? You guys think I was going to scream freedom real loud right there? No. <laughs> no. I already took a risk. You'd be distracted by thinking about Braveheart for the rest of the sermon, so I knew I couldn't transport you there with a loud freedom. But isn't, but isn't that how we normally portray our heroes? It is. This is not that. And it really lends itself, even in the very fact that we, we see the Aramaic here, this is... To, to Greek and Roman and, and Hebrew readers, there's no reason to give the Aramaic unless it's eyewitness testimony, it's a memory. That's what they heard him scream. Okay? There's, <laughs> this is great evidence that this actually happened because you would have probably skipped it if you were making this up. You understand what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Okay. All right. <clears throat> but, but here's the thing. <laughs> Even... That is what it looks like to us at first glance, but, but this question, this shout, this scream from the cross, it isn't even what it looks like. 
Okay, Jesus is actually still in such command of the situation, in the midst of this unimaginable agony, that he's quoting scripture from the cross. This was not a loss of his faculties. This wasn't a a moment of desperation where he felt abandoned by the Father. He's quoting scripture. Let me read you a couple sections of Psalm 22. This is a messianic psalm. This is a prophetic psalm. Psalm 22, verse 1. Anyone want to guess what verse 1 is? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was quoting scripture. Starting in verse 16. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them and they cast lots for my clothing. This was written by David. Was David ever crucified? He was not. This was a forward-looking prophetic psalm pointing to the death of Christ. Well, I'm not sure. Well, here, let me solve it for you. Jesus quoted it as he was dying on the cross. That solves it for me. I don't know. This scholar said, I don't really care. I think Jesus made it pretty plain what's going on here. This was referring to him. And people that knew their Bible should have known that when he shouted it from the cross. But instead, they got hung up on how the first word that he said kind of sounded like Elijah. And what did they do? Again, miss the point. (laughs) Man. Unbelievable. Many who were crucified. This is historically recorded. There's lots of information about it. Many who were crucified were so weakened from the ordeal that they would be unconscious for some time before they finally expired. As I read that description of crucifixion to you, can you understand that? Do you understand that to be beaten and scourged, to have the blood loss that would happen there, and then to be nailed to a cross that many times people were passed out for quite some time before they finally died? Okay? Jesus, that was not the case for him. Jesus breathed his last at the exact time that had been appointed in eternity past. Before God had ever even created mankind. Jesus died when he decided. And not a moment sooner or a second later. Yeah, he's the king of the Jews. And he's the king of you too, you fools. Because only someone with big power goes out like that. The centurion noticed, didn't he? The way he breathed his last, the centurion said, whew, that was the son of God. It doesn't give us any more details about about how, but I imagine it had something to do with the clarity of the reality that Jesus was in control, that he took his last when he decided to. No one takes my life from me. I'm giving it. And what does it tell us that these were his words in the midst of such unimaginable physical agony. What what does this point us to? Why was this prophesied in Psalm 22? What it tells us is that the worst part of the cross wasn't the pain in his body. It was the severing of his connection to the Father. As he bore the full weight of God's holy wrath against sin. The ordeal had already been going on for quite some time. The torture had been unimaginable already. 
But there's this point. My question is, if you were, if you were in Jesus' spot, su- subjected to that kind of physical torture and abuse, is, is your relationship with God on your mind? Is that what's, I mean, this is so excruciating, that's why I took the time to try to explain it to you. Having nails driven through one of the most sensitive nerve centers of your body, can you imagine? I, I, I can't imagine being coherent with that happening at all, much less being preoccupied with something else. But Jesus is. Jesus is God in the flesh, the eternal second member of the Trinity. And that means, up until this point, he and the Father had always enjoyed perfect fellowship and unity for eternity. Here's what we see happening. The wages of sin is death. And what is death? Death is really separation from God because God is the source of all life. He's the giver. He's the sustainer of life. And this, death, those wages, those, that's, that's, that's the wage we've earned. It's the fate we've earned with our rebellion. And it's the punishment that Jesus suffered in our place so that we can be restored. There is a very real sense in which as Jesus became sin, as Jesus had the fullness of the curse of the law and the wrath of God poured on up, upon him on the cross so that it didn't need to be poured upon you and me, that there was a necessary severing of relationship. There was a, a distancing. There was this painful division. And I'm, I'm wondering, friends, if for a minute we can just contemplate what this means for you and I. How should we think about that? Does it have, have any application to the way we conceptualize our lives or our walk with the Lord, I, I think it should. If, if the agony of severing his connection with the Father was a more searing pain for our Savior than the nails driven through his wrists, what should we see from that? A couple things. First, we should be filled with unwavering gratitude that we are saved from this separation from God by grace through faith. We should be filled with unwavering gratitude. And second, we should be filled with unwavering compassion for those still experiencing this pain. Because this is the reality for every single person. Not connected to God who is the source of life. Through the finished work of Christ. Through the grace and mercy bought and paid for in this act of sacrificial love we've read today. This is where every human stands apart from Christ. In a place that should be, and in all reality is, more excruciatingly painful and difficult than even perhaps the worst torture that mankind's ever devised in crucifixion. This is what is wrong with our world. If the Bible is right, and it is, We were made for the purpose of being in relational connection with a Father God who is powerful enough to provide for us and to protect us and to love us perfectly. We're meant for relationship with a Father God 
like that. And if we are in that kind of relationship, if we're in that kind of relationship with a perfect Father God who won't fail you, who can't, who protects for you, protects you and provides for you and loves you perfectly always, if that's the kind of relationship we have, what should naturally then flow from us? It should be worship. If you, it's hard to conceptualize, isn't it? Because all of our other relationships, they, they don't meet this bar. They don't meet this bar of perfection. They don't meet this bar. It's hard for us to even really imagine what it's like to be in relationships with someone that will never fail you, that is always there, and then will always do whatever is necessary to, to help you lead towards what's best for you. That will love you and sacrifice everything for you always. That has no sin that causes them to be selfish at any time. It's hard for us to even put our minds there. But if we, if we had that, we can. If we have it, then what, what should be our response? The only proper response then is, is worship of a father God like that. But if we were made for that kind of perfect connection and it's severed by sin, where does that leave us? If that's what we were made for, that kind of perfect relationship that leads to worship, but it's severed by sin, where does that leave us? It leaves us in the same agonizing place Jesus was on the cross. Separated. Separated from what we were made for. You see, that's the problem. And the other problem is that many times we don't know what the problem is as humans. The reason people have this deep ache in their hearts and this sense of irreparable brokenness is because sin has separated them from the God who made them. We, we can sense this ache. It's very real. We were made for perfect relationship and the worship that flows out of it. But when people don't know why they are broken and they don't know who can fix it, they end up worshiping all kinds of things trying to stop the pain. It's tragic and it's pitiful. And the tragedy is that the idols we chase trying to fulfill our purpose, they often have the same effect as, as the wine mixed with myrrh that Jesus refused that we read about last week. I told you that as the process of his torture was just getting going, somebody offered him wine mixed with myrrh. That was a sedative. It was meant to dull their senses as they endured the torture that was coming. And Jesus wouldn't take it. Now, now we partially understand better why. He needed his full faculties he needed to be standing in the might of all of his power as he allowed his own creation to put him through this in order to save us. But what happens is over time, these, these other idols, these other pursuits, they, they have that, that similar effect that that wine mixed with myrrh would have. Over time, our senses get dull as we're distracted by gobbling up the, the rotten scraps that this world has to offer. 
It's, it's very much like eating spoiled food, which it may seem like it's satisfied for a while, but it, we don't realize as we're taking that in, it's, it's poison and it's going to have to be vomited back up eventually. And here's the thing, what's really difficult, so much of this spoiled food that we settle for, it, it, it looks great at first glance. It's, it's often good gifts that our enemy twists and perverts, trying to get us to worship them instead of God. It's things like marriage and sex and leisure, work, children and friends. It's these things that we end up worshiping instead of the God who gave them to us as good gifts. Relationship with God is our purpose. Separation from God is our problem. And our servant king suffered our punishment to free us from the prison of false worship. If I lost you in in the last five minutes, that's the summary statement right there. All of our attempts to solve this problem on our own power and in our own power, they only make the pain worse. Are you listening to me? All of our attempts to try to solve this problem, what's the problem? Separation from God. Every single attempt we make to try to solve it ourselves, it only makes the pain worse. And we see that actually illustrated in verse 38. Verse 38 says that the veil in the temple tore from top to bottom. Okay, let me explain that to you if you're not familiar. This veil in the temple, it separated sections of the temple. Behind that veil, that thick veil, was the Holy of Holies. It was a place where specially designated priests went one time a year to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. This is where the tabernacle, this is where the, uh, this is where the Ark of the Covenant, this is where Aaron's rod and all the, and the tablets and everything. God's presence literally dwelt in between the wings of this cherubim over top of this Ark of the Covenant. Okay? This is where God's presence was. That veil represented, it, was a, it, it didn't just represent it, it was a physical separation between the presence of God and sinful people. And here's what I want you to see. All of, all of our vain attempts is like us running up to the, the bottom of that veil and trying to grab it and tear it from the bottom. It'll never work. The veil tore from top to bottom. God was the only one with the power. God was the only one with the means to remove the need for separation from us because of sin. And don't ever forget it. Stop striving on your own. Quit grabbing the bottom of that veil and thinking you're going to do something to it. You can't. It's God alone in Christ. It's the power of God in his gospel that affects salvation unto mankind. And we are going to break our backs and we are going to continue heaping upon ourselves pain and difficulty and struggle trying to fix this problem on our own. You can't do it. We're not just sinners that need a little bit of help. We are rebels that have to put down our weapons. We have to submit in humility to the reality of what we're seeing here. We can't do it, friends. We can't. I had already mentioned to you, I want to make sure we 
think about this. Verse 39, the centurion, there's, there's no doubt he, he had seen a lot of people die by crucifixion, right? Something about this stood out to him. Enough to say, surely this man was the son of God. I just, I want you to see the wisdom of God in what details he inspired the writers of scripture to put there, okay? This also helps us deal with foolish things that that are mostly motivated by a desire to avoid the implications of, because here's the thing, and Paul said it, if, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we should be pitied. We are fools. Laugh at us, okay? But one of the, one of the ways people have tried to say, well, I'm not sure I believe the resurrection is, is something commonly referred to as the swoon theory. So what they, they propose is that Christ didn't actually die after going through this torture and this crucifixion. He merely swooned. He merely passed out, was laid in the tomb, and then without medical care, recovered three days later, moved the stone and came out. <laughs> I mean... Respected people with letters behind their names say this stuff. I mean, it shows you the desperation to avoid the implication. Because the implication of a risen Christ is that you are not God. The implication of a risen Christ is you are not in charge. Someone else gets to make the rules. We don't like that. But we better get liking it. (laughs) More and more. Lord help us. Verses 40, 41, and 47. Okay? I'm kind of jumping over um, Joseph of Arimathea for a second. 41, 40, 41, and 47. I want you to hear this. The mention of these women is not some throwaway detail. I was, I was just telling you, man. God, as, much, as much particular control as God had over the events of the crucifixion. I'm telling you, Jesus breathed his last the very second that he and the Father decided that he would before they ever created mankind in eternity past. That's a powerful God. Okay? The same, the same degree of detail that went into that went into this. So there aren't throwaway verses. And this reference to these women is not a throwaway detail. What, it, what it's meant to do as a matter of fact, is to be a high honor to them, to highlight their fearlessness and their faithfulness. Because the disciples had all scattered and ran. The guys, <laughs> the apostles, the guys that were going to be apostles, where are they at? I don't see them. Who was there? These faithful women. And what does that mean? I, I can say a lot more about that, but I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to say this. And, and there's, there's a little bit of an inside joke here. If you don't get it, come ask me later and I'll explain it, okay? But here's, here's what I want to say. Based on this and so many other things in the Bible, we're going we're gonna to get into the resurrection next week. You guys got any guesses the gender of the person that saw Jesus first after he was resurrected? You got a 50-50 chance. Guess. Oh, that was a woman. And we went ahead and recorded that on purpose. Okay, what does that mean? That means to any men that are out here telling people that the Bible teaches that women should be sidelined from gospel mission or that they're not meant to play a vital role in reflecting the goodness of God to the world with the gifts that God has given them. If there's 
all you dudes, and now I'm looking at you on the internet, because this is where that's going. I'm assuming most of you in here are not dudes presuming to teach the Bible, teaching this kind of stuff. Okay, but this is a public statement, and I'm going to stand by it. Here's what I have to say. If, that, if you're a guy, and that's the kind of stuff you're teaching, if you're a presumed Bible teacher, and that's, that's your shtick, here's what I want to say to you. Go home. Go home. Quit saying that, because you're wrong. Period. You can be mad, sad, glad about the fact that I said that. I said it. I'm assuming by the reference point, most of you are not on Christian Twitter, so you don't, you don't know the underlying inside joke. If you want to hear about it, come talk to me. And you're probably better off for not being on Christian Twitter. Just stay off of there. It's a nut house. I said that, okay, and I meant that, all of it. But I also want to make sure we say this. We are complementarian in our understanding of the roles God has established for men and women here at Love City Church, okay? Here's the problem, though. This is why this gets difficult. There's many who call themselves complementarian when they're actually totalitarian. They've robbed the good meaning of that theological distinction in the way we see gender roles. A lot of them are totalitarian male chauvinists, and what it does is it muddies the water, and it makes it really hard for those of us who know that women should be honored and celebrated as equal image bearers of God. Like I said, I know some of you know what all that means. Some of you may not, okay? If you've got questions, reach out. We'd be happy to walk you through it. You're like, complimentarian? I don't know what that means. Well, we should talk about it because it's pretty important, especially in this day and age, okay? Amen. Let's look at Joseph of Arimathea. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council. What council? The religious leader council. That's weird. Who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. He gathered up courage, went in before Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead this time. And summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. Pilate asked the professional executioner, hey, is that guy dead? What did the centurion say? Yes, we crucified him. He's dead. So ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in a linen cloth, laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out in the rock. He rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Here we have a guy. He's not what you'd expect. He's a member of the religious council. Um, widely believed and understood he was probably wealthy. Not what you'd expect. This is the kind of guy, guy's got some influence in the, in the culture. He's got, got some wealth. This, this is the guy that many today really like to hate. That many today would make snap assumptions about. And here's what I want us to see it's really important that we get this. It's really important that as we read about the sacrifice of Christ today, that the power of his gospel just doesn't just affect us in, in bringing us to a humble place of understanding our own need for God. It is important that it does that, and that's primary. But what it also needs to do is humble us in the way 
that we see other people. Because Joseph of Arimathea was a guy that nobody would have expected to go in, take the risk, ask Pilate for the body of Jesus. This wouldn't have gone the same way if the Romans just took him down and chucked him in a pile of other dead bodies. You understand that? Because that was probably the other option. Joseph took him down with care, wrapped him in linen that he bought, laid him in a tomb and rolled the stone over it. But if you had just met Joseph two days before and said, hey, who are you? What what are you about? You, You probably would have assumed he was an enemy of Jesus just because of who he ran with and what his affiliations were. You see what I'm saying? It's a problem with the way we make snap judgments about people. And here's what I'm saying to you. Overall, and this is real, real important. This is going to get more important as we continue to move on. If, if, if the wave of, of how culture is, is dealing with one another, if the, wave, if the wave of how people are dealing with one another, it continues in the direction it is, we need more than ever to remember that the gospel shouldn't let us dismiss anyone because Jesus died for them. And I want you to really seriously check your heart. I want you to really humbly submit yourself to the inspection of the Holy Spirit and ask yourself and ask the Lord to reveal to you, are are there any people that you just dismiss based on your snap assumptions? Are there any groups of people, individuals, and, 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 and as you do that, you may come to the point where you're like, well, I, I don't think it is a snap judgment because I know this and this and this about them. And here's, here's what I want to say to you. Wh- whoever annoys you, whoever you don't have any time for, whoever just really, man, gets under your skin, somebody, somebody that you, you are sure there's no way that's a, that's a faithful follower of Christ. Here's, here's what I want you to understand. One of the seven statements that we'll read this upcoming Friday was from Luke 23. Something Jesus said is real profound. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who was he talking about? He was talking about the very ones who had just nailed him to a cross and were standing at the bottom, hurling insults, casting lots for his clothes. Okay? If Jesus will pray to the Father for them, what room is there left for us to just dismiss anybody and decide, ah, I'm not going to pray for them. I'm not going to try to love them. Because there is no room. That's the answer, right? (laughs) There's none left. This much. Zero. And what that should push us to do is is to be enamored once again with the reality of the gospel. As, As we read and we understand the veil was torn from top to bottom, as we open ourselves up to the reality of how much we needed Jesus, how wretched we were, how rebellious we were, I was, what it should also do is change the lens with which we see other people. You can't, you can't just right out dismiss anybody because Jesus died for them, man. Yeah, but they're really bad. You don't know how bad they are. Well, I, they're not as bad as the guys at the bottom of the cross. I do know that. Now, what does that mean? Let, let me round that out. There's all kinds of things to consider there. I'm talking about our hot heart posture. I'm talking about making snap judgments about people from a distance. I'm not talking about if somebody is putting others in danger, if there's abuse, things like that. That means we just 
lay down under that. That's not at all what I'm saying, but I'm talking about what do we, what do we hope for for them? Jesus, Jesus didn't get down on, off the cross and, and gamble with them for his clothes. He wasn't hanging out with them, but what was his heart posture towards them? Father, forgive them. They've tortured me in a way that's barely even conceivable. Forgive them. Christ had hope for him. And I'm, I'm just encouraging you, friends, please don't let yourself get to the place where you refuse to have hope for anybody. Jesus, the highest, went the lowest. Jesus, because he was perfect, the sins committed against him are, are, are in particular, they're, they're worse than any sin that could be committed against me. Do you understand? Because I'm an... I'm an imperfect being, so to some degree, I probably got some coming to me. You understand? Jesus had none of that coming to him. If the highest went the lowest, if the most pure and the most innocent is willing to forgive all, there's no space in in between there for me to get away. May God help us in the power of his gospel to realize our great need for him and then to live in hope and in love for others as a result. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, I thank you for your word. We say it all the time, but Lord, may we really just right now seriously stop and thank you for your word, the intentionality behind your word. Thank you for being so wise as to have four different writers with different perspectives record the events of the gospel. Thank you that we today got to see what you inspired Mark to point out. All the little details and what it says, what it shows us about your love and your mercy, but also your sovereignty, your power. You are not a God to be trifled with. You are mighty, And you are incredibly loving. Thank you that you are. You are the perfect father that many of us struggle to even conceptualize. That you will never fail. You never have. You can't. Thank you that your goodness is forever. And your intentions toward us. We love you. We need you, Lord. We're reminded of that today. We need you. We can't tear the veil. Father, we confess our our tendency. Even those of us who have tasted and seen how good you really are, we, we still get pulled back into the foolishness of running and giving our worship elsewhere, thinking that maybe it's gonna help. Lord, we realize it won't. Right now, as we sit under the preaching of your word and the working of the power of your spirit in our hearts, we know what the truth is. There's only one way the pain's going to stop. There's only one way we're going to find the purpose that we yearn for. It's in your arms, Lord. Thank you that you've invited us to come. Thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies. 
or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.